Hello and welcome to Yammer of the Gods, the podcast where we talk about writing about music. Two books up for discussion this month. First, in honour of the 50th anniversary of Radio 1 and Radio 2, we'll be chatting about Bob Harris and his book, The Whispering Years. And then Matthew Evans will be joining us to talk about something a little cooler, Meet Me in the Bathroom, Rebirth and Rock and Roll in New York City, 2001 to 2011. That's a new New York oral history by Lizzie Goodman. So, Hazel, you're going to be talking to us about Whispering Bob Harris's autobiography, The Whispering Years, published in 2001 by the BBC publishing subsidiary BBC Worldwide Limited. And what inspired you to read the autobiography of uh, the DJ Bob Harris? I've got a a bit of a soft spot for Whispering Bob Harris, I have to say, um, which could be Stockholm Syndrome or something related to that. Um, Basically just from having spent the last 20 years of my life watching repeats of the old grey whistle test on, on telly on any programme that's to do with music. They wheel out some clip from the old grey whistle test. And I also saw him on Antiques Road Trip quite recently and he came across as very nice. So... That was that, my main motivation. It's enough for you. It's enough for me. And, I mean, he's one of those DJs who is not quite as obnoxious as your classic Radio 1 and Radio 2 DJs of yore. While he was derided for, for being very low-key, hence his, his nickname, Whispering Bob, um, I think... With the benefit of hindsight, it makes him a lot less annoying than some of the loud, noisy, boisterous Radio 1 DJs that we all remember from, from the 80s. So, you see, you've always had a soft spot for Whispering Bob. Have you maintained this soft spot since reading his book? Actually, since reading his book, I like him a lot less. I, I, I think I've moved from a from a position of mild liking to to indifference <laughs> but um yeah it's not made me dislike him intensely <laughs> <laughs> i guess that can be considered a success in in terms of publishing So, would you like me to give you a bit of a potted history of Bob Harris? If you would. I mean, old grey whistle test aside, I'm not too sure what his, his life's consisted of. Well, as I mentioned in the the introduction, my decision to read this is sort of tied in with the anniversary of Radio 1 and Radio 2. and I, In my mind, I always associate him with that old school uh, BBC DJ music presenter thing but actually he didn't present a a radio program on on the BBC until 1970 and he only did that uh, a a program called Sounds of the 70s on Radio 1 uh, for five years that was sort of simultaneous to doing the old grey whistle test that was from 1971 
And then he had like this massive break from working with the BBC and then he's come back and then he's gone again and he's sort of gone round various BBC channels. But he certainly developed a bit of a an Alan Partridge-esque persona in the 70s of moving off to to present on Radio Broadland, which is like a Norwich radio station. And he, uh, I think, was one of the sort of staple DJs, one of those um, super... I think it was called Superstation, one of those automated sort of broadcasting stations which feed music to local radio to keep them going um, over times when they don't have live presenters and things like that. So... It hasn't all been glory for Whispering Bob. It certainly hasn't. He has had many incarnations. He had uh, quite an interesting foray into publishing early on, um, before he, he got into DJing. And he and a friend like set up this magazine, this local magazine um, in London over a summer holiday. Um, they borrowed some money from somebody's auntie to set it up. They did like a 5,000 print run. And um, that magazine turned out to be Time Out. Um, and it just grew and grew. And in an alternative universe, I think he would have gone down that route. Um, but something with it didn't click. And he also seems to have a like, tendency that comes out throughout the book of despite being a thoroughly nice guy seemingly he seems to manage to pee off quite a few people um in spectacular style and um i'll just read you a a section from uh, the end of the story of his time with time out magazine now we had an office and an expanding editorial board office politics began to evolve tony began to realize i'd stopped enjoying this I'd disappear for a couple of days, come back, make a few phone calls. My heart really wasn't in it anymore. I arrived one morning to discover the locks had been changed and I couldn't get in. I'd been voted off the editorial board in my absence. Tony produced a letter in which I relinquished any right to claim any ownership aspect of Time Out from then on, which I signed. Mm. I was going to ask you whether Bob Harris had had the foresight to uh, hold on to ownership of Time Out. He didn't. Um, and it's this is sort of like an early indication of he doesn't just sort of like stop doing something or stop being friends with someone or seeing as much of them. It, he tends to have these fallings out, mm. uh, which he downplays. But there's a big difference between like not having your heart in something and being forcibly locked out of a building and voted off the editorial board and having all the rights to your involvement with the company withdrawn. So, you know, we can we can draw our own conclusions from that. He also like had this great friendship with um, John Peel early on and then, for reasons that are unclear, John Peel just decides to stop talking to him and they sort of don't speak again for at least 20 years, which is bizarre and unexplained and of course his most famous falling out is seeded early on in the book and I'll just take this opportunity to to read you uh, another extract from the book which I particularly enjoyed 
this is before his career as a as a DJ has taken off. He's struggling a bit, and uh, he's living in London um, with his girlfriend at the time. Um, Sue joined me in London later that year in my tiny bedsit, but we soon realised we needed more space and had moved across Hampstead and onto the top floor of 77 Platts Lane. Sue had bought me a Philips portable record player and I would sit on the balcony overlooking the road, pretending I was playing music to a festival crowd. Little did I know that 25 years later I'd be back in Platts Lane fighting a legal battle with with a fellow Radio 1 DJ that threatened the whole structure of my life. My God. The suspense. The suspense. It's Bruno Brooks. <laughs> so, how did Bob Harris get involved with the early days of Radio 1? Was it just the fact that he was a hippie in London? <laughs> Yeah, he was just, he had quite a few records, he was into records, he um, decided to do a bit of DJing, which in those days was much closer to radio DJing than we see it now, I guess. Like now, the DJ doesn't talk over the records when you go to, you know, a discotheque or um, out for an evening but in those days you would play some records you would introduce the records you would make some announcements a bit of inane chat over the top so the transition from that kind of DJing to radio DJing is much closer than being a nightclub DJ and and a radio broadcaster is now really so he just sort of met somebody put together a, a sort of test show, they played it to a few people, somebody went on holiday, I think it was John Peel actually went on holiday, they said, can you come in and, you know, cover one of these, one of these shows, and it just developed from there really. It basically sounds like anyone could wander into Radio 1 at this time, and end up with a lifelong career. Well, of course, anyone couldn't, and that's, one of the big criticisms that's levelled against that era of, of radio DJ is they are a very homogenous bunch of white middle class men. Um, and Bob Harris was very middle of the road. He was very fortunate. He came from, you know, a nice middle class background. Seemingly just wanders into into a job seems to be quite a middle-of-the-road character just in general. His music tastes are quite pedestrian, uh, veering towards adult-orientated rock, proggy, but not too far out proggy. Um, and this actually was one of the, the things that sort of led to the backlash against Bob Harris, the whispering Bob backlash. So he was set up to be like a figurehead for the punk movement to rail against the antithesis of of sort of the punk spirit. How did um, Bob Harris feel when punk came along and changed the musical landscape? I don't think he was really taking a lot of notice. He seems to have really not been terribly impressed with with new wave and punk music and alternative music that was happening at that time, um, partly to do with 
him being the presenter of the whistle test so that's a a program that was kind of focused around the idea of the album and to be, get on you had to have an album and then when you had all alternative music sort of emerging none of these bands had albums initially so he didn't feature them on his show and people sort of felt he was overlooking things and there's that famous instance when the New York Dolls are on and he sort of derides them as mock rock um, and he just despite only being something like 32 when punk came out so not like massively old um, compared to the people making the music yeah he he really didn't sort of get it at all mm. and the punks were apparently very aware of that and there was sort of quite a nasty physical altercation between him and um, the Sex Pistols entourage which um, perhaps you'd like me to read you I would love to know more about Whispering Bob's altercation with the Sex Pistols entourage and I'm sure our listeners would as well so just to contextualise he'd been out with a, a friend, a session engineer called called George Nicholson a session engineer he's not exactly moving with the uh, high end of the rock aristocracy no so anyway he and George decide to stop off at the speakeasy before um, going home so he describes it as thus as we walked in past the bar we bumped into Jim Diamond no idea who that is who told us that the sex pistols were in the restaurant they seem a bit rowdy he'd confided Oh, sorry, with a characteristic Scottish understatement. <laughs> you say that again, please? Ooh, they seem a bit rowdy. <laughs> it's not Scottish. That was wee Jimmy Cranky, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so, yes. Sorry, it, it, to, I really do apologise to anyone in Scotland listening. Um, it was the day they'd signed with A&M Records and they'd been celebrating. Having gone on a wrecking spree at the record company offices, they arrived at the speakeasy with fueled up with a fueled up entourage and were having their own private party in the restaurant. So he goes in and um decides he probably uh it's probably not a good idea for him to be there, so they decide that they're gonna leave, but not before they're spotted. Where are the pistols going to be on the whistle test then? He demanded. This is a man. A man demanded. Uh, okay, yes. <laughs> Very convincing accent so far. The, yeah, the, the, really, the, the Scottish I'm, man and I'm, the man. I'm trying to bring it to life. Um, this isn't the right time or place, was my reply. What was Bob's reply? With that, he took a swing at me, cuffing me round the shoulder and knocking drinks off the bar. It seemed to be some kind of signal. <laughs> yeah. so, I think they're trying to tell you something when they punch you. Um, all hell broke loose. Suddenly, people were punching and kicking their way through the crowd, trying to get to me. People began to scatter and I, as I was pulled round to the other side of the bar for protection. I couldn't see George. Glass was flying everywhere. People were either caught up in the mayhem or screaming in panic, trying to get out of the place. As I tried to gather my senses, I was confronted by about a half a dozen Mohican-cut drunks, faces spitting hatred, their fists clenching broken glass. 
I was in serious trouble here. More scared than I'd ever been in my life. Even abseiling on the outward bound course in Cumberland didn't compare with this. Very evocative writing. It, it, it is. Three options flashed through my mind, through Bob's mind, as I struggled to maintain my composure. The first was to try to run, but I was in a cul-de-sac on the wrong side of the bar with a wall at my back, and they were barring my way. The second was to fight, but at six to one against, the odds weren't favourable. I decided on option three. Let's talk, I began. What do you think you're going to achieve by this? One of them kicked out at me while another tried to slash me with a beer glass. And it goes on. Mm, it's well, in his attempt to reason with the the violent men, you can sense this kind of paternalistic, slightly patronising tone which uh, the punks were reacting against in the first place. Yeah, and um, he's all right, but um, apparently Sid Vicious has stabbed a broken bottle into George's face. So poor George. Mm. I mean, George hadn't done anything wrong. He just wanted a drink. Well, yeah. Sid got his comeuppance, didn't he? Well, he did. He did. Um, and that's really the only reference to punk or any kind of music that Whispering Bob doesn't like. And the rest of it is kind of just tepid enthusiasm <laughs> for bands I have no interest in. Um, yeah, he... After the punk incident, he decides to... Um, get out of the country for a bit and... Lie low. Lie low. And um, he goes to uh, goes to America and interviews the Knack. Like, yeah, cutting edge. So earlier on you put us all on tender hooks by alluding to Bob Harris's feud with fellow Radio 1 DJ Bruno Brooks. Um, could you elaborate on this for us? Yeah, I don't think it, it started as a feud, more as a misunderstanding in a series of unfortunate global economic events. So basically, Bob Harris was back on Radio 1, he was doing quite well, he needed somewhere to live and Bruno Brooks is like, I've got this house for sale, if you want to buy it, it's quite nice and Bob Harris is like, oh, I don't think I've got enough money and so Bruno Brooks in some weird deal sells him a house but lends him half the money to buy it off him. I can see Bruno Brooks twirling a black handlebar moustache and cackling up his sleeve while Bob Harris signs some paperwork. Yeah, I you just get the impression that um, he should have known it wasn't really a good idea. So he like lends him a large sum of money, like something like £100,000. And then at the end of the period when he's supposed to pay it back, he can't pay it back. And of course, you know, the early 90s are well known for uh, the instability <laughs> in the housing market and the economy in general. Basically, Bob Harris's house wasn't worth anything. He couldn't sell it. He couldn't pay the money back to Bruno Brooks. And everything sort of went tits up, really. Um, Bruno Brooks was demanding money off him. He didn't have the money to pay. Bruno Brooks tried to 
have bailiffs seize his uh, record collection and there was a lengthy, very public court case where Bob Harris is trying to defend this collection from getting impounded because he says he needs it. You know, as a DJ, he needs his records to hand compile his um his radio shows and bruno brooks well he doesn't hand compile his radio shows he says why do you need these records i just go to the record library somebody else does it for me and it's sort of like it's like a metaphoric battle between the old school radio one dj and the new school radio one and that is a battle that um whispering bob has been on the sharp end of on a few occasions in his career (laughs) it's you know it's quite hard to pick out (laughs) there's a a reoccurring theme of low points so he's up and down and up and down is bob and um prior to um the whole bruno brooks fandango he's uh made the statement, uh, my career reached its lowest point on the day Live Aid was broadcast in 1985. <laughs> I was on air at Radio Broadland, that's Norwich, uh, doing my Bob Harris music show, watching the concert on the monitor in the studio. Mike Appleton collaborated with Bob Geldof uh, to coordinate worldwide television coverage of the event and it was very much a whistle test day using all the programme's facilities and expertise. I desperately wished Mike had asked me to be involved. I felt sad and unwanted. Like I was a million miles removed from it. Oh, he was. He was in Norwich. I knew nobody had tuned into my show. I actually asked people to phone in just to reassure me that someone was listening. I got one call. So, yeah, not a not a great relationship with Radio 1 in the later years. Um, and he does come back to the BBC and has sort of quite a long career on Radio 2 and I think he's been on Six Music a bit. And um, he seems to sort of have a respect for his fellow DJs, um, Bruno Brooks not included. And while sort of Bob's autobiography is not the most thrilling thing to read he does have his sort of moments of intense enthusiasm which is quite sweet there's a a bit where he's joined uh, a radio station in thames valley a small commercial station housing a converted ambulance depot near tilehurst so um we can all visualize that i think and uh, he is describing his First day on the show. My first broadcast was on a Saturday afternoon, sitting in on the sports show, taking reports on all the local matches, reading out the scores and playing a few records. I'd never done a programme like that before, but being a keen soccer fan, I had a really good time. At six o'clock, one of the young station DJs arrived in the studio to do the 210 club show that followed looking at me apprehensively over a pair of national health glasses that sat precariously on his crooked nose. Who could it be? He was armed with boxes, carts, tapes, discs, newspapers and letters all spilling over the desk as we went through the hot seat changeover. I couldn't believe he needed all that stuff. 
until I heard his show come alive in the car on the way home. It was a revelation, a cavalcade of news items, sketches, phone calls, correspondence, characters and the occasional burst of music. It was exciting. I hadn't heard anyone as effortlessly madcap since the Everett days of Radio London. As I flashed back up the M4 to London, I decided I wanted to be a part of this station and all the time he was banging home his name. I wasn't about to forget it. This was Steve Wright, six months into a burgeoning radio career. And he has a lot of, a lot of respect for Steve Wright. And a lot of respect for sort of staff at the various radio stations that he's hmm. worked at. But um, not necessarily for the people that run the stations who tend to come off badly. Yeah, particularly Matthew Bannister. Oh, Matthew Bannister who cleared out the dead wood at Radio 1. Yeah. And there's a nice bit where he says... Um, his, he's working at Radio 1 and everything's quite nice. He's got a new wife. He's had three wives. He's got eight children. Mm. Um, he's got a new young wife and he's very happy and uh, he's got his job on Radio 1. Our lives seemed idyllic, but nagging worries were beginning to surface. I arrived at Egton House one evening to discover Dave Lee Travis waiting for me. And like that's a that's an omen. And, and Travis knew that uh, something was afoot. And he was right, because uh, they cleared all of the the old guard out and Bob went off to work on some crappy local station again. So a life of ups and downs. Well, very much a life of ups and downs. But he stuck at it, the old DJing, still whispering now, isn't he? Yeah, he's um, doing some country music thing, mm. like really, really early in the morning. Mm. But he's happy. God bless Whispering Bob. Hello, today we have Matthew Evans joining us to talk about a brand new oral history of rock and roll. So Matthew, what is it that you've brought to talk about today? Uh, It's a new book by Lizzie Goodman. Uh, hot off the press, and it's called Meet Me in the Bathroom, Rebirth and Rock and Roll. And it's mainly about bands in New York around the start of the 2000s. Uh, it goes up to 2011, but as we'll probably touch on later, it's sort of more the earlier part of that period. It's basically Lizzie Goodman, who's a rock journalist, and she's just produced this book where she just lets the people who are involved sort of speak for themselves, really. There's quite a light touch. So what sort of bands are we talking about then? Uh, so the Strokes sort of dominate a lot of it, as as you might expect. Uh, there's a lot of Interpol in there. There's a lot of stuff to do with James Murphy, so LCD Sound System and Death From Above Records and so on. Uh, and it kind of goes up to a bit later, so when the Killers and Kings of Leon and the Vines and the like come around. So generally it's quite indie-ish, but you get some of the sort of dance stuff as well, the Rapture and an LCD. So her involvement with these bands, I understand, was that she kind of was there at the time and she knew a few people. Is that how she got into telling the story? Yeah, I think that's it. So she was, I think she moved to New York when she was 18, 19 or what have you. 
and you know all these bands were starting to sort of play around town every night got to know them quite well sort of wrote blogs about them and so on and then a little bit later on realized that maybe there was a there was a book there to be written so yeah i mean one of the most impressive things about the book is just she talks to pretty much everyone you could want to hear from really um the one exception being Carlos D from Interpol, who uh, she it's... describes him as her white whale, doesn't she? Yeah, which I think is it's a very bit going over the top. <laughs> yeah, but it's quite nice because nonetheless, you hear a lot of stories about him, um, and it's because he always seemed like this enig- enigmatic, sort of slightly mysterious, eccentric figure. So it feels kind of apt that he's the one you don't hear from at all but yeah everyone else and she gets people to talk quite candidly about stuff that happened and you know things where they didn't show themselves in the best light necessarily so she was obviously very trusted so her voice isn't in the book explicitly she doesn't write anything herself but obviously she shapes how the story is told through the quotes that she's she's chosen yeah who else comes through quite strongly through these quotes um and the strokes are interviewed a lot james murphy is in there an awful lot i think just because he's quite charismatic and witty so you get a lot of his voice there's some bits where it's a bit odd you get a lot of james murphy talking about stuff but you don't really learn much about the music he was making or the bands that are on his dfa label so sometimes there's a bit of a mismatch between how much someone talks and how much you get to know about actually what they were doing. Yeah, and you get... There's some people... Early on when I started reading it and, you know, every page there's sort of six or seven different people talking and early on I thought, oh, this, I don't know who a lot of these people are. It's just going to be... You know, you're normally going to take it in. Mm. It's not going to feel very interesting because you, you don't know what their relevance is. And there's some people she talks to... She talks to a lot of people who were blogging at the time it's hard to be well, too interested in what yeah. they have to say sometimes. But generally, it's even if you're not really aware who certain people are, it all fits together and flows very nicely. There's a big list in the front, isn't there, of who yeah. everybody is. Yeah. Did you find yourself going back to that over and over again? Yeah, yeah, and there are certain names where I just could never remember who they were. So <laughs> keep, keep going back. But, you know, it's nice... Because I liked a lot of these bands at the time, so a lot of the names were very familiar, even if they were bands I weren't interested in or what have you. Harmar Superstar turns up <laughs> quite a lot, and it's I got quite nostalgic for old Harmar. And he, he's a lot of fun in there, but but I think that's probably something that's unavoidable if you're structuring a book in this way. There's yeah, with that many people contributing. Yeah, your reader's not gonna keep up with who everyone is, but it's not particularly important. Really, everyone tells great stories. Um, it's it's structured very sort of clearly and it's amazing you know because she's quoting people at length and the chapters are quite long but it never feels it does feel like everyone's there in one room everything follows on very nicely from what's what's gone before and were there some people that you were like oh I've rediscovered this person based on the way they talk about things I love them now uh, well uh, Kings of Leon who I've never been fairly indifferent to they come across brilliantly and they're very funny and amusing and engaging uh james murphy who i've never been into lcd sound system but he just doesn't seem to care how he comes across he's quite bitchy about stuff (laughs) 
and uh, he's just a lot of fun to read. The only person who winds me up in there really is Ryan Adams, but I always sort of yeah. found him a bit irritating. So, what was Ryan Adams' involvement in that scene? Because obviously it's primarily bands rather than solo artists that you associate with. Yeah. At the time. Yeah, I think he moved to New York, New York, became mates with the Strokes. So he was just sort of hanging around, really. Um, I don't think he sort of got... I think he was already probably been around quite a while, hadn't he? But, mm. yeah, he does... It might have been a useful career move for him, because I seem to think that he was an outlaw country singer yeah. initially. Perhaps yeah. moving to New York to be friends with the Strokes helped uh, get him some... Um, some sort of credibility. Well, it also helped him get a lot of drugs, I think. That <laughs> that, that, the reason why I paused, though, was because yeah, oh, right. I was trying to think of a nice way of saying <laughs> oral sex and drugs. Yeah. Um, and he's quite... Actually, to be fair to him, he's sort of... Uh, he's very honest about all that. I mean, there's some disagreements about how disruptive a sort of influence he was and so on. But he talks about, yeah, just wanting to move to New York and do the whole sort of tortured artist just getting fucked up thing and he's quite entertaining but he does just seem like a bit of an annoying hanger-on sort of character so a reference point for this book seems to be please kill me the oral history yeah yeah by Lex mcneil and julian mccain to do with new york proto-punk punk bands in the 70s and that book is wonderful for being so terribly gossipy and having nothing in it to do with music whatsoever. (laughs) Is that the case with Meet Me in the Bathroom? Is there much about the actual music or is it more about what was going on behind the scenes? There's a fair amount of music. Like I say, it's tricky because as someone who I'd heard a lot of the music, maybe I don't notice that it's not touched on so much, you know, because one of the frustrations was with the DFA stuff where I'd probably be quite interested to find out more about that. They didn't really talk about what music they were releasing at all or what it was like. Um, so I think it is mainly yeah, people talking about what a good time they had, basically. Um, good for them. That's, well, yeah, that's... I'm glad that they was had a, lot a of better fun. time than me. Yeah, well, one of, the, one of the reviews I read of the book was just... I think a guy gave it two stars and said... Everyone did more coke than I did <laughs> in the noughties. There's a huge amount of it. Um, but I was quite glad it wasn't too much about the music in a way. Because the early pages, you get Dave Sitek from TV on the radio talking about how, at that time, he talks about how later on sort of people would move to New York to want to recreate the Velvet Underground or this sort of thing. And I was kind of worried when I started that it would be everyone going on about, oh, we wanted to be in this lineage of mm. these arty bands and stuff. But no one really seems to care about that. It's no. just we wanted to have a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, I remember when the Strokes first emerged, obviously people would make spurious comparisons to the world and ground a lot. But also yeah. um, television, for instance. I remember the Strokes uh, saying they'd never even heard television until people compared them. Yeah, yeah. Put me off the strokes a bit. To yeah, it's bizarre. But I mean, they don't sound the, like the, the television. They don't particularly sound like the Velvet Underground. It's just the expectation that they would fit a New York aesthetic of just being really cool. Yeah, I think that's it. There's a nice bit where Karen O is talking about 
you know, the sort of history of New York music. And so I think she refers to Richard Hell as Richard's generation man. Or yeah, <laughs> she can't remember who the guy is. She, she's aware of him, and I quite like He's that. He's that old cause... guy standing at the back at the gigs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just old, I old was man. sort of worried that you know it'd be reams and reams of people talking about how they wanted to be like these bands from 30 years back or whatever but none of them seem to actually care about that like mm. you say they're all compared to these bands mm. but that could have been very much a media thing though I guess yeah from our point of view so far away from everything that was happening that would have been the only point of reference would be their bands from New York. They're yeah. skinny and they wear leather jackets. And... Yeah, wanting yeah. to put a narrative on it. And yeah. yeah, there's another nice bit where, again, Dave Sitek's talking about how... I think he's asked, or well, people are talking about, whether they were aware of sort of what was going on and the fact there was this big story around all these bands. And he just says, well, anyone who wasn't in New York probably has a better idea than anyone who was. And I think he says, oh, when I look back my idea of how things progressed were, oh, and then I got a new tape machine. Or, yeah, <laughs> is, mm. wasn't thinking about building up some sort of no. mythology or it having any sort of... Well, there's also the fact that people in bands, young people in bands living quite fun, hedonistic lifestyles, they're not necessarily reading books of music history day and yeah. night. They're not necessarily concerned with broader narratives. Yeah. Of of music history, which is perhaps a, a liberating thing in that it means you're not uh, overburdened by the anxiety of influence and all that. You're yeah. free to uh, make music which the more knowledgeable observers might think was rather crassly indebted to things that had gone mm. before. Yeah. Mm. There must have been a, a certain degree of that, though, in the drawer of New York, because most of these people are people that kind of came to New York to pursue an idea of something that had been shaped by um, the mythology of the city and music. Yeah. And I mean, do you get a, a sense of that in the book? What was it about New York that appealed to these people? And... I just want to use your quote that you pointed out earlier now. Off the, off the <laughs> mic. <laughs> um... Yes, the using... Um, I think in the introduction she describes uh, playing the city like a video game. So yeah. What does it mean to play a city like a video game? Well, in the context of the introduction, which is the only bit of the book that I've read, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she talks about like you know moving from place to place, knowing the environment so well, and going to the bar where you know on certain days you're not going to get carded when you try and buy a beer and going to um, the other place where the place where you know you're going to get I don't know, great tacos mm. or yeah so an insider's knowledge that enables you to move through spaces freely yeah and I feel don't... like you're part of a greater whole. yeah a symbiotic kind of um, relationship with the city which is it's very appealing particularly in reference yeah. to New York isn't mm-hmm. it yeah, I got the impression that it was more that than wanting to go and because of any particular bands or anything. But uh, in terms of New York and the importance of the city, obviously the book is documenting music was made in the early noughties, so what's the effect of 9-11 when that comes along? 
I mean, I remember it did mean that the Strokes had to leave New York City Cops off the American release. Yeah, which wasn't a big loss for the American public, I don't think. Um, So, yeah, aside from the loss of New York City Cops, yeah, a lot of them talk about just how it felt like a very sudden sort of just not being safe, you know, they'd sort of been living in this sort of bubble and then, you know, like that's completely gone. The drugs probably helped. <laughs> yeah, possibly. But I quite liked how it almost sounded like it was the aftermath was quite exciting in that everyone just thought, well, could die at any time. Let's just go out and party. So it didn't, it didn't <laughs> seem to disrupt much in a yeah. way. Mm. Um, it's never been my natural response to <laughs> massive disaster, imminent doom yeah. <laughs> to go well, and have a good time. But I suppose it's it sounds worth one, giving one a go. Instrument. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and if you think about um, historically music in the twentieth century, there was a lot of response to um, being young and feeling like the end of the world might be coming. So I guess it's not uncharted territory mm. yeah and I, well in New York so I guess if you've got disco coming about in the 70s and stuff a lot of that was you know blacks, gays, Hispanics and so on who were very oppressed and not mm-hmm. having a good time with things generally were very poor and just thinking well let's go out and do something that's just for us and is just pure enjoyment you know yeah. I think there's a similar in... sort of response perhaps in New York in the early 60s, the folk musicians would respond to um, the nuclear Cold War paranoia of the day by going out and singing folk songs, yeah. having a, a good good sing-along. So, yeah, it's a, a <laughs> recurring trend. Yeah, I think it's got better with each <laughs> later iterations. Yeah, don't speak too soon. I mean, I don't know what the music world of... Post-Trump. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, what has... Has anyone sort of written about any uh, observable trends yet? Yeah, Amanda Palmer. Oh, God. Is she... <laughs> Amanda Palmer from the Dresden Dolls. That's it, yeah. Popular hate figure for uh, cynical right. people. Who don't embrace her world of creative artistry. No, she just got some flack for saying, come on, people. Trump's an excuse for people to make great art, great poetry and that kind of thing. Mm. People said, oh, fuck off. Okay, so let's talk a bit about like the actual bands in the book and your relationship to them. Was this sort of a big nostalgia fest for you, Matthew? A, a little bit, yeah, if I'm honest. I mean, and the reason I was interested in reading this book was, you know, I've always been a bit of a geek and reading all these books about music from, you know, well before I was born. So it was odd seeing a book come out it's about music where, you know, I was a teenager and I was actually into it when it was happening. I'm realising that it's not it's not a hasty publication or anything. This stuff was a little while ago now. So, yeah, it, it was a little bit nostalgic and I was worried I'd be reading it and thinking, well, I don't know if I like this music anymore. 
I'd be better off reading about something new. But it was also nice, and I think maybe something we're going to talk about, about how the British press talked about it at the time. You kind of got this image of what was going on in New York. So it's quite nice reading something that comes out much later where it's actually the people involved talking about it. and You sort of get quite a different impression of... I vividly things. remember the enemy seizing from the strokes in 2001 by extension New York but yeah. from what I remember the bands that the enemy were throwing in alongside the strokes at that time were the Mouldy Peaches and A.R.E. Weapons who oh, I remember being a, a noisy electro type band they don't mm. seem to be mentioned in the index of Meet Me in the Bathroom No, which is funny because at the time I very clearly remember them being yeah. alongside the Strokes as contemporaries. Yeah, I think that was it, wasn't it? It was just anything that was in New York, um, the enemy would just seize on it. Like Fisher Spooner, who do get talked mm. about in the book. And they're quite uh, engaging, Fisher and Spooner. I think their names were... Do we know... The way we approach these bands is from our perception of how successful they were. Were all the bands that um, were successful in England as successful in their native New York or their anomalies in that? Yeah, it sounds like... The impression you get is... Well, especially with the Strokes, actually, they didn't really sell that many records at any point. They weren't really that big in a strange way. Um, Mm. Maybe there was so much hype early on that people were a little bit fed up by the time it came out, or there were already lots of other bands. And I think the Strokes, some of them talk in the book about how, you know, they kind of feel, not cheated, but like the Killers sort of came along later on. And probably no one would have taken much notice of the Killers if it hadn't been for mm. the Strokes first. They and then... put in the groundwork. and then... Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, the Strokes obviously are a big band, but they've yeah. never been in an arena band. Which no. the killers very much are. Yeah. And um, the Kings of Leon. Yeah. That, like, yeah. su- the super popular alternative music, which had that existed before, I guess it had in the forms of people like The Cure and not for a while. No, I think this is the musical period that I remember from when I would read The Enemy, and this was the first thing that had happened that I felt particularly engaged with being rather too young for Britpop. Um, it seems like this was post-Britpop, the next point at which the enemy got excited about bands that were actually quite interesting and that those bands, though nominally alternative, did become pretty successful and then you could immediately... Not immediately if you lived in Grimsby, but by 2004 in Grimsby, you could register the um, impact of that band in the way in which sixth form girls were dressing. Mm. Not that they were <laughs> necessarily dressing like the Strokes, but there was a certain scruffiness sort of aesthetic that you'd associate yeah. with with those bands. Speaking of girls. <laughs> it seems like a male-dominated scene. Are there women other than on Camino? There's a woman in Mouldy Peaches. Oh, of course. Oh, yeah. Kimmy Kimmy Dawson. Dawson. Kimmy There's Dawson. Camino and the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs. That's um, all you need, really, isn't it? Two's enough, in that. <laughs> <laughs> most great, most great <laughs> movements in popular music 
haven't needed the um, input more than two women. Let me scan the back cover. Yeah, just those two. Another thing I was wondering about, which was commented on a lot at the time, was that the strokes were terribly rich, weren't they? they oh, all... yes, and the guy um, from LCD Sound System, he's loaded. I oh, right. James Murphy. Mm. Well, I think it's him. <laughs> Did he have a privileged background? <laughs> I think he came into quite a lot of money. Did he set yeah. up his own record label? Yeah, he set up DFA, but I think, I can't remember the guy's name, but I think he benefited a lot from a guy he lived with who sort of set up the studio and everything because he wanted to make things happen, but mm. didn't have musical talent himself. Oh, fortunate to have friends like that, isn't it? Yeah, so he did all right. Um, and the strokes that Albert Hammond Jr.'s dad, Albert Hammond, who co-wrote Leo Sayers' deathless hit, When I Need You. Oh, oh I didn't realise that. Mm. I mean, it seems to me, if your dad had co-written a Leo Sayers song, then you're pretty much guaranteed a career... In the, <laughs> in the rock and roll world, you can just walk in with those kinds of credentials. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember there being a lot of old, they're just rich boys and stuff. Um, and they talk quite openly in the book about one of their dads having bought all their instruments and stuff and amps. And they don't seem ashamed of it. And I don't really see why they... I don't think it has much impact. It wasn't like they were making songs about oh we're so poor and no so they weren't trying to um affect any sort of yeah they were just reveling in hedonism and taking loads of drugs and... yeah yeah there isn't a a kind of a call back to dirty gritty poverty ridden no. new york in in the music no, no. no and of course the strokes did look great mm is that I talked about in the book. The strokes were very yeah. good looking and photos of them early on, there was, it might be a bit trite to say homoeroticism, but there was a, a charge a to cool do with how they looked. Boy Boys, young, yeah. young men together looking great and being yeah. very comfortable with one another, arms yeah. draped round each other's shoulders in a loose way. Yeah. Did they make an impression on the scene as this gang, was the gang mentality. Yeah, the bits of the book I enjoyed most maybe were, particularly the strokes talking about just being a gang and, you know, them saying, not that they were doing it in a cynical way, but they wanted to be in a band, almost not so much for the music as just, they liked the idea of running around all getting on the bus together and people seeing them together. <laughs> they wanted to be in a band so they could go on the bus. So they could go on to, the bus together, together, yeah. There's not many careers where, like, that is your job. job. <laughs> yeah. I think the sweetest bit of the book is, I think it's maybe their tour manager talking about the strokes coming over to England for the first time. And after the gig, they were just all in one hotel bed together. And she was like, oh, what are you doing, you daft lads? And they were... Julian Casablanca's or someone says, oh, we just want you to know that we want to be like this forever. And it's oh. just this lovely, sweet sort of... 
young mm. men. Yeah, having a lovely time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Presumably that's before they staged an intervention on the one that was a heroin addict and kicked him out of the band. Well, then, (laughs) actually, that didn't happen. It didn't. If you read the book. (laughs) Um, No, with uh, Albert Hammond Jr., who talks very openly about his heroin addiction, but they kept him in, you know, and he says, well, really, I should have been it'd have been understandable if they'd have got rid of me, but... But that's know, the one really... with all the money. <laughs> 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 and my dad had the connection with Leo Sage. Yeah, so... Which had to hang on to We him. were dependent on for our success. <laughs> yeah. so that does bring us to loyalty, and was there... Was it a sort of a scene where everybody was loyal to each other, or was there a lot of backstabbing? Well, when I'd read reviews of the book before reading it, I thought it was going to be much bitchier and more gossipy than it is. The only really um, bitchy stuff is about Ryan Adams and the Strokes, where... Oh, oh actually, that's not true at all. There's um, James Murphy and Tim Goldsworthy from DFA as well. That gets quite spicy. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, there's a lot with Ryan Adams and the Strokes where you get very different takes on what happened. And, oh. um Shame Ryan Adams is only one man, and there's loads of them to... Yeah, it is a shame Ryan Adams is only one man. (laughs) It'd be great if there were more. (laughs) The Ryan Adams. (laughs) The Adams family. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know about Albert Hammond Jr. being a heroin addict. This brings me back to um, um... maybe younger bands would benefit from spending more time reading music biographies. I mean, it just seems... I might be naive, but it just seems a bit shocking to me that a member of a successful band in the 21st century could be so foolish as to become a heroin addict. Though um, I did just remember that Pete Doherty existed. Yes. And I believe he crops up in the book. He does a little bit, yeah. cast a dark shadow? They don't... The only times the Libertines really come up uh, especially members of the Strokes saying, oh, we play gigs with these weird blokes wearing funny hats in London. And <laughs> they started wearing suits and trying to be louche. They're quite mocking of the Libertines, which is quite good fun, actually. Yeah. Well, it's funny um, because the Libertines did become huge for an indie audience, the likes of which, you know, would have been the Strokes audience. Yeah. In this country, yeah. the Libertines became huge. That might seem preposterous to uh Yeah, I can imagine them eye. thinking, you know, who are these daft cockney blokes with funny voices going on about Albion and stuff. And Consider- replicating that whole, you know, very tactile with each other mm, yeah. skinny lads all together we're brothers <laughs> ronnery brothers yeah they cried yeah. yeah in hindsight it was a bit naff wasn't it they did overdo it a bit mm. the and it it um was responsible for a lot of reprehensible behavior in the real world out and about at nightclubs at the time there were lots of young men emulating that that was quite Sick making. Yeah, I mean, I felt that way and I didn't have to sleep with them. (laughs) (laughs) Whereas if you're a woman, you had to sleep with (laughs) With members of the Pete Doherty impressionist. It was actually something not a lot of people are aware of, but (laughs) (laughs) it 
In 2005, it was compulsory to have slept with a member of the Libertines if yeah. you were under 25. You couldn't get a man without a trilby. <laughs> <laughs> Still can't in some cities. No, no. been listening to Yammer of the Gods, the podcast where we talk about writing about music. Uh, my name is Hazel Smachinska and I have been joined this month by Tom Robinson and uh, by our guest Matthew Evans. Thanks Matthew. See you next month. Bye. Mm-hmm.